0: As a free, not-for-profit service, Cradio requires the support of people like you to help keep us going in our mission. To donate, visit cradio.org.au slash donate. Cradio. Building on a solid foundation. Christian foundations of the rule of law in the West. A talk by Professor Augusto Zimmerman at the Christopher Dawson Centre for Cultural Studies 2018 Colloquium. Uh, well, I prepared a paper on the subject, and, uh, but it's a lengthy paper. And uh, if I had to read it, it would take about four hours to be completed, because we have so much to say about the Christian foundations of the common law. It's a long history, and it's a very rich history. Uh, if you wish to know more about this subject, you have to wait for the publication of my paper. But meanwhile, you can even buy my book that I have over there. <laughs> that, that will help with my um, uh, Jet Jetstar uh, weight uh, baggage, because I had to pay an extra as a result. So if you can help me not to have to pay again, that would be really good. And I, I hope you appreciate the read. But uh, look, this is an important topic, in my opinion. It's about the, the Christian roots of uh, a legal system, and especially this whole idea of the rule of law. That's not the rule of man. It's the rule of of law as a higher law jurisprudence. So what I have to to tell you is that the concept of the rule of law is uh, intrinsically connected with a Christian understanding and Christian view of the law. The law not being the law necessarily uh, imposed by human authority because it's not that the law is made by man necessarily, but it's based on certain higher. Principles, the principles of jurisprudence that um, derive it from a higher law jurisprudence. And i explain a little bit this concept because, after all, the, this is also connect, connected with the roots of Western constitutionalism. The idea of a higher law is what inspired, in my area of constitutional law, the idea of we have to write down certain rules and certain principles that will be applied even to limit the power of authority. So it's like um, not just that the law is made by the authority to impose the will of the authority, but also government is under the rule of law. So the rule of law is the rule of law that is applied to both ordinary citizens and the state as well. And it's important to bear in mind, Professor Patrick Paxton uses a a beautiful analogy with the, the womb. And he says that Christianity is is to the formation of the Western legal tradition as the womb is to human life. It's a beautiful uh, way to express this, and it's really nice. And he's he's qualified to say uh, such a thing because he wrote uh, a book on introduction to Australian law that's considered a seminal seminal book here on the subject. So he's highly qualified as a, a legal academic, And um, the more I know on the subject, the more I have to agree with him. So I think my purpose today is to justify his argument. (coughs) I think this is an important passage in history. That's when um, a bishop, uh, Ambrosius, Uh, he rebukes the Roman Emperor Theodosius, And that is important because this guy was the Roman Emperor. So he was considered uh, uh, to know uh, the Roman Emperors were even before Christianity deemed to be gods. And uh, one of the reasons as to why Christians got into trouble uh, with the Roman Emperor is because they refused to worship him. (coughs) But... um, In Christianity, you have this remarkable passage in history where the Roman emperor is being even excommunicated and he has to repent. And he uh, was forced to be uh, repenting by the Bishop of Milan, uh, St. Abros and what he did was to tell the Emperor Theodosius that he couldn't uh, continue attending the Mass. He was expelled from the Church and he would have to repent for the massacre of about 4,000 innocent people. He had to apologize and to say that he would never do such a thing again and that from now on he would be also under the law. That's an important uh, moment in history. The concept of the rule of law is quite important, Uh, and um, you might think that perhaps what I'm saying was uh, the understandings of uh, people who lived in in the medieval times, or perhaps uh, I would say prior to modernity, but uh, if you read this passage in this book, it's written by the leading constitutional lawyer in England in the 20th century, Owen Hood Phillips, and he wrote this uh, seminal work on constitutional law, and he refers to the fact that um, historically the concept of the rule of law was used as a reference to belief in the existence of law possessing a higher authority, whether divine or natural. And so then he refers to, for instance, Brechtum referring to his statement that the king himself ought to not be subject to man, but subject to God and to the law, because the law makes him king. This is an important passage because, you know, it's repeated by Cook in his interactions with uh, James I. James I, of course, thought that as a king, He would uh, personify the law. He would impose his will uh, through the legal system. He thought that he was the ultimate creator of the law. (coughs) But Cook told him that, that according to uh, their legal tradition, he was even making a a bit, being a bit sarcastic, even saying to the king that perhaps he doesn't know English history properly. (coughs) He was not from England. James I, and he was told to James, look, you know, things work a little bit different over here. Uh, here the king is under, the, under God and the law, because the, the law makes you king. Uh, that was not very good for his job, because he ended up losing it. Uh, but, uh, but he didn't lose his head, that was good for him. But it's to say that, look, the king is also under God and the law, because the law makes him king. This is an important passage, actually, and it comes from uh, the Legitibus Conciertudibus Anglia by Bracton in the 13th century. But I'll just go to this guy now. <coughs> no, It's not now, sorry. I don't have... No, 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 you can go. It's not Bracton now, so I'll talk about Brackton soon then. But let's see uh, what I have here. It's about the idea of liberty, and that's a very important thing because these passages were used... So the benefit of human freedom. So you see for instance Bracton referring to these passages, and he's even saying that jurisprudence is the art of just and right. So this whole, um, (coughs) I would say, concern uh, for uh, turning the the legal system into something that would eventually and certainly and finally protect the basic rights and freedoms of the individual. Uh, Fortescue is a good example as well. John Fortescue in the 15th century when he says that the whole purpose of the law is to guarantee that people obtain freedom and that government is limited by the law. And so this whole thing is actually biblically uh, inspired. And of course, most of these jurists were not just uh, jurists in in the strict uh, sense of the word, but they were also theologians, and most of them were even ministers in the Anglican Church, in the Church of England, and before the, the Reformation of the Catholic Church. All right, so what I feel that's quite important to say, it's about uh, the saint, for instance, uh, Saint Augustine. And what he says here is quite important, because he's referring to the fact that, um, uh, first of all, one thing that's very important is that he was not European. He he was born in Algeria, uh, but he then uh, lived most of his uh, life in, in Europe, in Italy. And uh, and so, of course, you know his work, you know the city of God, you know confessions, and, and he is a, a leading uh, theologian of even of the present time. But um, he also wrote things about law and about the role of government, the role of government. And he was trying to, to explain what, what happened in, in Rome, for instance, because Rome had been taken over by the barbarians. And, of course, they, they were telling uh, the barbarians, uh, basically, there was this justification that, that Rome had been invaded because Christianity had corrupted the Roman society. And he was trying to say, no, it's, the invasion has nothing to do with Christianity, quite to the contrary, and he wrote The City of God. But there is a passage in this uh, particular work where he says, and that I, that I believe is a very important passage. Justice being taken away, then what are kingdoms but great robberies? For what are robberies themselves but little kingdoms? And and I think it's an interesting passage because then he gives an example. He says, for instance, like of course, he's saying that if the government is actually behaving in a <coughs> bad manner, in an evil manner, the distinction between this government and a bunch of criminals actually ceases to exist. So the, 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 the difference between government and a bunch of crooks and criminals is that the government is creating laws for the common good of the society. But it does say that the government ceases to do so. Then the, the distinction basically ceases to exist because what criminals do is to design uh, rules and strategies to cause harm to others unto others. So if if the government decides to do evil, then the government is not so distinguishable from a group of criminals, a gang of criminals. And um, I can even go back again because I have something else to say about him. And he gives the example of of, um, an interaction between Alexander the Great. I think if you read The Seed of God, you know what I'm talking about. Uh, He talks about uh, Alexander the Great encountering a pirate, and the pirate says, you know, uh, you are doing a far better job than me because uh, you have this big empire, you know, I have just small ships, but the difference between me is that your uh, activities of pl- plundering, stealing, killing, you are being far more efficient than me, you know, I have to expand my business, and then one day I can be called an emperor or something like that. <laughs> Uh, Aquinas is also quite important, as you know. And uh, Aquinas wrote these uh, classics, Summa Theologica, and uh, most of his book is about rules, is about natural law, is about the different uh, kinds of existing laws, and he placed, of course, the eternal law is above everyone, every single uh, existing uh, type of law. Uh, one thing that you have to bear in mind is that it's not right to say that he wanted to entirely undermine the idea that revelation is not important because some Protestants made this false accusation about Aquinas One, but what Aquinas says is that uh, we can we can discuss the, the law of the state in line of something called um, natural law, but as a matter of fact, the best way to be sure that you got reason right, because there is right reason, bad reason, and wrong reason, is the confirmation of Scripture. So he is not uh, throwing away the need for revelation, actually. And it's very important to bear this in mind. And he says that, that since God's eternal law... Is a plan of government in the supreme governor. All plans of government in lesser governors must be derived from eternal law. That's, that's an, the best evidence you can find to debunk the idea that uh, he removed the need for revelation. You can still have natural. Natural law can be an important tool if you don't have the book that uh, create, that is inspired by God's revelation namely the Bible. So he says that the people who don't have the Bible still have the laws written in their hearts. That's what, uh, for instance, St. Paul says in his epistle to the Romans. But uh, even if you do not have the revelation of God, you can still have, because we're creating the image and likeness of God, the capacity to somehow discover law, the, the right and wrong through reason. And that's a very important point. Please, go ahead. Well, let's go and a bit in history now. uh, Progress a little bit, and let's go to England. And this is the Magna Carta. I was very, uh, I would say, uh, humbled and even blessed to be addressing the Magna Carta here in Tasmania. A couple of years ago, there was, uh, I think, two years ago, the the anniversary of the Magna Carta in, in 2015. And uh, I presented the paper on, on, on the Magna Carta and its religious roots in the Parliament here in the Tasmanian Parliament. And then I got to know even more about the religious roots of the Magna Carta. And I started to do research and a work uh, of research on the life and legacy of the writer of the Magna Carta, namely uh, Stephen Langton. He was the Archbishop of uh, Canterbury. And uh, he really tried to create in England a godly society. And he, he thought that the best way to actually create a better Uh, society was to create a constitution, uh, to write down certain rights and certain principles that would be applicable not only to the uh, uh, interactions between normal ordinary citizens but also to limit the power of the state in this case to limit the power of the monarch and uh, and then this whole idea about law of the land due process of law a trial by, by ju- jury and even the idea of a constitutional government with uh, the control of co- control of constitutionality over uh, the decisions of the king he would create actually a constitutional court, the first draft of the Magna Carta established even a constitutional court. And it was all based on biblical principles. So it's amazing that he was really trying to uh, set up a system where they would, in fact, and not just in theory, uh, establish the rule of law. And that's a very important moment in the history of England. Then we have finally this guy that I've, I thought I would talk about him. But now, now finally I can. It's uh, it's about Brecht, and he was a, a justice of the king's bench. And he wrote this, the Legitibus et Constitutibus Anglia. And he's con- this is considered the first systematic treatment of the common law. So the guy wrote the first systematic treatment of the common law. And that's pretty good because, you know, in many ways, being a systematic treatment of the common law is not a work of um, a social engineer. In those days, it was not so common to have the sort of people in academia. So he was just trying to explain what he was seeing. So it's a good book because it gives you an understanding of what uh, jurists in England normally thought about uh, about things such as law, justice. So it's actually telling you the, the mood of the day. And it was considered to be a very important book because it's the first, as I say, systematic treatment of the common law. That's why he's called the father of the common law. So that's his title. The, 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 he, this book is so important that he was called the Father of the common law uh, that's his title and uh, and then there is this passage that then would be used by Cook later in his interactions with the Stuarts, especially James I uh, The king shall be under God and the law because the law makes he king, for there is no king where will rules rather than the law. But you know, this passage is even better than this, but I couldn't get the whole thing because it'd be a little bit messy here on this slide. But uh, he gives the example of Jesus, actually, Jesus Christ, the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Because he says that Jesus came and that Jesus said that he would fulfill the law. He was not coming to uh, abolish the law. He was not not coming to get rid of the law. He came to be uh, even under the law so that you can get saved. And then he says, and it's a remarkable statement. He says, if the king of the kings... If the Lord of the Lords was willing to be subject to the rule of law, what about you, a little king? Are you going to think that you can be above the law? I don't think I can find a better argument in a Christian society than this. So he was basically saying that if Jesus, the king of the kings, was under the law, he had the little king, the obligation to be under the rule of law as well. It's a very compelling argument, in my opinion, if you happen to be a Christian. Uh, This is uh, John Fortescue. Uh, He was the chief justice of the king's bench. He was recommended for his wisdom, gravity and uprightness. So he was a very nice guy by the way. <laughs> and he wrote this book, The Laudibus Legum Anglia. So it's like in praise of the laws of England. Of course in those days it was easier to praise the laws of England than today. So uh, in those days it was good. The laws of England were to be praised. and and this is considered to be a masterly vindication of English law and I'll tell you why, because it's also a work of constitutional law. So this guy is quite important to me because I'm a constitutional lawyer and he talks about um, the importance of establishing a royal government that's not a government uh, that creates an authoritarian environment. So he distinguishes, for instance, the idea of a government that imposes its will and a government that's subject to a kind of a higher law jurisprudence uh, that ultimately serves the purposes of advancing freedom. And he considers the main purpose of government to protect the basic rights of the individual, he talks about this in very clear terms and as I'm going to prove it because I have some passages uh, uh, from his uh, work to prove to you that uh, the idea of law in those days was very much connected with a liberating force. It's not like the Marxist approach of law. That law is used as an instrument of oppression. That law—that's why the Marxists are so good in oppressing others, because they believe that the role of the law is to be an oppressive instrument. One day we have paradise on earth when there will be no law. That's the communist utopia. But in our tradition, law is not for this such. Uh, act of oppression. It's actually to be a liberating force. So this whole idea about law is that with with law we have liberty. With law we have the protection of our rights. With law we prevent tyranny. And and nobody put this in a better way than Fortescue. Fortescue was really outstanding in this particular uh, uh, approach to the legal system. Let's have a look. This is my favorite passage, actually. Uh, there are many good passages in his book. But I, I, say that I, I must say that perhaps I review a little bit of my ideological or religious orientation when I say that I absolutely love this passage. It's, uh, it's probably one of my favorite uh, passages in, in, in all these uh, different legal texts. But let, let's have a look and, and read what he has to say. A law is necessarily judged cruel if it increases servitude and diminishes freedom, for which human nature always craves. For servitude was introduced by men for vicious purposes, but freedom was instilled into human nature by God. Hence, freedom taken away from man always desires to return, as it is always the case when natural liberty is denied. So he who does not favor liberty is to be deemed impious and cruel. In considering these matters, the laws of England must favor liberty in every case. Well, I love it. I love it. And that that is our tradition, you know. And uh, unfortunately, most students have no idea about these things because they're not being taught these things in law schools these days. But let's go and move a little bit further. Well, then you have Cook. And Cook is important. Cook is actually called the Shakespeare of the common law. And it was Howard who said so, and he was the leading uh, English historian of the 20th century, and he called Sir Edward Cook as the Shakespeare of the common law. And he relied on actual law to both defend and explain the common law. And he famously uh, quoted from Bracton to remind King James that the king must be under God and the law. And of course, that was a, a very important moment in history because he was called uh, to uh, encounter the king to explain why he was not doing the king's will. Because the king was not happy with the way he's deciding. He was not happy with the way uh, he he was uh, passing rulings, judicial decisions, and uh, the king uh, summoned him and asked him what if he was aware of the fact that his decisions were making him quite unhappy. And that's when he quotes from Bracton, saying that, you know, we have to tell you, uh, the, the, uh, the cook had to tell the king to let the king know that he had to understand that some laws were above his domain and as a matter of fact he could have good exercise of reason but he was not a lawyer and perhaps not really strict on the laws of England that had as one of its basic principles that he was to be uh, the law because the law made him king. And so he reminds the king of, of this fact, and, uh, and uh, the, this is a, an important passage. But the, another thing he does, and that's very important to bear in mind, is the fact that he talks about um, uh, the constitutions of all uh, of countries, the idea of a natural law. He talks about the idea of the law written in the heart. He even talks about Moses and all sorts of things, so he was a very religious person. I mean, Cook was a, a person who took his faith very seriously, and he even said that the best constitutions, the, England, the, the best laws England could have, are the laws inspired by, by the the Scripture. And uh, certainly, one thing that you have to consider is that England has never developed a written constitution. And one of the reasons why it didn't develop a written constitution is because they regarded the principles derived from Scripture as the most important legal principles in the country. And as I say, even in the 20th century, people used to refer to the Bible as a sort of a legal source for England, to the point that uh, some jurists in England would say that an attack on Christianity uh, a vile attack on Christianity would equal an attack to the common law. So the common law was so connected, the principles of common law are so connected and so associated with Christian principles that an attack on these principles would be an attack on the common law itself. And that's what they say about him, that he was, he's the, <coughs> the Shakespeare of the common law. So this is an important uh, uh, reference. And uh, so in one of his uh, uh, books, The Second uh, Institutes, uh, Cook has this passage that I believe to be quite uh, beautiful, actually. Uh, you see, these people were poetic, even, because it's a, it's a nice way to develop his argument. And he says this, For as in nature we see the infinite distinction of things proceed from some unity, with many flowers from one root, many rivers from one fountain, many arteries in the body of man from one heart, many veins from one liver, and many sinews from, from the brain, so without question, this admirable unity and consent of such diversity of things proceeds only from God, the fountain and the founder of all good laws and constitutions. And uh, so it's, it's amazing, because if you read his decisions, you know, he's also uh, always, by the way, trying to refer to scripture. So it's, uh, it's really amazing that, that up to the 19th century we had so much of biblical passages and judicial rulings referring, reference direct reference to God, uh, the, even to the point, as I say, that uh, some of these jurists would say that if you have an end of Christianity in society, it's the end of the common law. So it, we have no common law without Christianity. Blackstone is quite important as well as you know. He was actually the first English professor of English law because in those days up to his time he would go to a law school in England, he would learn canon law and he would learn uh, philosophy of law natural law. Uh, You know this thing that we would have to learn the more practical things was considered not so important and he was the first professor to teach uh, English law in this more practical sense of the word, and he delivered the first series of lectures on English law ever presented in an English university in 1753. And his uh, book, The Commentaries on the Laws of England, are the most celebrated law book in English and language. It was described by Thomas Jefferson as lucid in arrangement, correct in its manner, classical in style, rightfully taking its place by the side of the Justinian's institutes, which is basically the codification of uh, Roman law, Roman law decisions. And so it's placing this uh, uh, book, the commentaries, at the same level of Roman law, and it's very important. As you know, in history we, 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 get, we got this uh, the Roman law tradition, especially in the civil law system, it's still very much present. So it's another lecture I have to develop this argument. But what I have to say <coughs> is that Blackstone was regarded as, uh, uh, as a very important figure to the point that his book was like a reference book to all law students. All law students, if you started law school uh, up to the early 20th century, not only in England, but also in the United States and even in Australia, uh, certainly up to the, the, I would say, the 1920s in America, every single American student would need to read the, the commentaries on the laws of England. It was like a book of, 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 on introduction to law. But let's have a look and say what he has to say. He said this, for instance, upon these two foundations, the law of nature and the law of revelation depends on human law. That's to say, no human law should be suffered to contradict this. And um, so these kind of things that he's saying were very important for the American founding fathers. Everybody talks about Locke, for instance. Locke was very important. John Locke developed this idea about uh, uh, natural law and the law of the state has having to be under the natural law. And if the law of the state contradicts natural law, then we have the right to resist this because this would be uh, akin to uh, like, uh, an act of tyranny. So a law that violates natural law is actually a a crooked law in the words of Thomas Aquinas. But Blackstone was very important as well. So in many ways, together with Locke, Blackstone was perhaps, I would say, the second most influential uh, personality during the revolutionary time in America, the American Revolutionary Period. And he was one of the inspirations for the American founding fathers, Blackstone, together with, with Locke. But uh, So, reasons for civil government. And I think all these things about establishing a, a system of constitutional government, establishing rights and freedoms, that's because we have government for a purpose. And the purpose of the government, at the end of the day, is to curb sin or violence in society. Uh, after seeing at the word, if you believe in the uh, Christian approach to, to this matter, we believe that one of the reasons you need government is that people have uh, capacity of do very bad things. So we need the government to restrain sinful behavior. So the state is commissioned by God to punish those who do wrong and to execute his wrath on the wrongdoer. That's found in Romans 13. Uh, so, but on the other hand, these people are human beings, so they, they can abuse their authority. They can actually become oppressors themselves. You see, in the 20th century, it's very important to bear in mind that nobody killed more human beings than government, you know. Uh, in, uh, we know that uh, just the communist ideology, uh, when we had them, these people in power, they killed more than 100 million people in the 20th century alone. alone. So power is a corrupting force when placed in the hands of sinful human beings. So the Bible says that it's not very good to concentrate power because power corrupts. As, As the Catholic Lord Acton would say in the 19th century, power corrupts. And absolute power corrupts absolutely. So to prevent this abuse, it's necessary from the nature of things that power should be a check to power. So Montesquieu's idea of separation of power is actually based even in biblical, on biblical principles. I must say to you that it's wrong to say that Montesquieu was a secular thinking If you say so, you're either lying or you haven't read The Spirit of the Laws, because the first chapter, he called book in The Spirit of the Laws is about the laws of nature in general. And he's very clear about his appreciation for the Christian religion. There is one particular book that's too controversial to be mentioned in the Spirit of the Lost, where he compares Islam with Christianity. And he basically says Islam doesn't lead to the same outcome. Islam is not as good as Christianity. And if you want to know his uh, distinction between Christianity and Islam, you have to read this particular chapter where he praises Christianity for making people more moderate, for making kings uh, under the Lord, you know, love the neighbor as you love yourself. Your enemies are even to be loved, not to be killed. So that Christianity teaches you to love even the enemy and all these things. So he is really, he has uh, chapters and chapters in this book where he talks about the goods of Christianity, how Christianity is a great religion. And the first chapter in the book is about natural law. It's about God-given laws. It's about the the laws of nature. That's a very good read, by the way. And so this is, for instance, one of the passages you can find in the Spirit of the Laws. He says this, The Christian religion, which ordains that men should love each other, would without doubt have have every nation blessed... With the best civil, the best political laws, we owe to Christianity in government a certain political law, in a war, a certain law of nations, benefits which human nature can never sufficiently acknowledge. And then he goes on and on praising Christianity. There's a whole chapter in praise of Christianity in his book. Uh, But, you know, in a certain sense, uh, Montesquieu was the second most sourced uh, reference by the American drafters of the American Declaration, not Declaration of Independence, the American Constitution. When I say that Locke was important for the American Declaration because he inspired, Locke and Principles inspired the American Declaration, the drafter of the American Declaration. By the way, the drafter was uh, actually Thomas Jefferson. Uh, And Blackstone was very important, especially in the draft of the American Declaration. When it comes to the American Constitution, the main source of reference was actually Montesquieu his idea of separation of powers, based on this idea that, you know, concentration of powers is a dangerous thing. So if you have powers concentrated, chances are that you will find problems because power corrupts, and absolute power corrupts absolutely. So it's not good for you to give too much power to human beings, even uh, to the point that uh, Montesquieu says that uh, even those who are well-intentioned, sometimes, you know, uh, even hell is paved with good intentions. So it's not good to give too much power, even for to people that who believe to be uh, doing the right thing. It's too dangerous. And uh, so he says this, uh, uh, Thomas Jefferson, of course, uh, before I talk to Thomas Jefferson, just one more thing about Montesquieu, I can't resist to say. When historians say that Montesquieu was the, the, the leading reference, the main reference, the main authority Uh, in the view of the American Founding Fathers to justify the enactment of the American Constitution, the U.S. Constitution, it's a half-truth. Because the main reference for these American Founders, the the most quoted source by the American drafters, was actually the Bible. And a professor from the University of Louisiana, he started to, to, to take the quotes and, and to see which one would be the most, which reference would be the most referenced, which author would be the most referenced by the American Founding Fathers. And then he found out that it was actually the Bible. And the second one was Montesquieu, but only after the Bible. With that in mind, it took so long for the abolition of slavery. Well, that's a good point, you know, in many ways... Uh, we have some uh, uh, contradictions in this uh, approach. As a matter of fact, it's not to be saying that, to, be, to declare that everybody is created equal and are endowed by God in invariable rights should then be discarded. The idea shouldn't be discarded, but of course they exercised a great degree of hypocrisy. But you see that in the 19th century, those who actually led this anti-slavery movement were committed Christians. I mean, most of the, the um, abolition were people who or if not, not not being directly li- connected with churches they were very committed Christians. The natural law argument was the, the primary argument in the fight against slavery. As it was the primary argument during the Civil War in the United States when you had Martin Luther King being a Baptist minister and he was appealing to Aquinas and, and St. Augustine when he went to jail, for instance, he said, look, do you know, what? you have to be consistent. You have to actually go back to your roots and if you really believe in what these guys are saying, it's time for you to practice equality. It's time to, for you to give freedom to all. Set everyone free. So there is another thing that's important. It's about the right to resist uh, oppressive governments. Uh, so the state is established by God as delegated authority. So the Bible actually reveals a kind of approval to civil disobedience if that is required. So there is, this is an old tradition in Catholic in, in Christian thought. Uh, for instance, like you have Origin saying that sometimes you have to actually endure the troubles of death and shame if necessary. You have to uh, uh, accept your fate if you. But you know, you, your duty as a Christian is to fight for justice. Is to fight to fight for the common good and against tyranny. For instance, we have uh, Rutherford, who was the, the, the Presbyterian minister in, in, in Scotland, who wrote, Lex Rex, not the other way around. It's not that the king, the king is the law, but the law is king. Uh, and Rex Lex, not Lex Rex. rex. So, Lex Rex, not Rex Lex. <laughs> you understand what I mean. Yeah. So, uh, and, and then he said, there's another thing that he said that I love it, is when, when someone said, but how about uh, Romans 13 saying that, you know, uh, we have to obey government, you have to respect government. But then he says that this is actually a government that is... Uh, Established in accordance with the, the idea that it's a delegated power, the power of, of the state is actually a power to do good. It's a power. The, the passage also says that the government is there to punish the evildoers and to protect those who are innocent. But if the government does the other way around, is the government actually violating? a command of God, you know. So it's not wrong to rebel against a rebellious government that's actually rebelling first against the higher law. That's why we have in our, in our tradition the lawful right to resist tyranny. It's actually lawful to resist uh, an ungodly authority if they are shedding the blood of the innocent, killing people and practicing terrible things, committing gross acts of injustice. It's not wrong to resist this uh, instance of tyranny. Uh, So, just to get a confirmation from uh, the popes, uh, this is an encyclical uh, from Pope uh, John the, the 23rd. Uh, and he says this: since the right to command is required by the moral order and has its source in God, it follows that if you saw civil authorities pass laws or command anything opposed to the moral order and constantly contrary to the will of God, neither the laws made nor the authorizations granted can be binding on the consciences of the citizens, since God has more right to be obeyed than man; otherwise, authority breaks down completely and results in shame. Abuse. I think it's a very clear command that we have to uh, consider that as the, uh, Peter was, uh, had these problems, you know, when he was called with the sign hindering, and he was told, You have to stop preaching the gospel, you know. And St. Peter said, Well, I would rather obey God than you. All right, so in many ways, it, we might have to reach this point that we have to resist government because government is telling you that something that you cannot do because you, it's better for you to rather obey God than, than evil, oppressive authorities. And uh, John's thought is, a, I love him. He has this passage pretty good, by the way. If the state commands what God forbids or forbids what God commands, then our plain Christian duty is to resist, not to submit, to disobey the state in order to obey God. <coughs> Whenever laws are enacted which contradict God's law, civil disobedience becomes a Christian duty. Pope the sixth, uh, Paul Pope the six now. We know, however, that the revolutionary uprising, save where there is a manifest, long standing tyranny, which would do great damage to fundamental personal rights and dangerous harm to the common good of the country, produces new injustice, throws more elements out of the balance, and brings on new disasters. So I think it's important to, 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 to take this in consideration as well. <coughs> because the, <coughs> the French Revolution was like to liberate people to, to create a better world but then they got um, uh, the terror then they got Napoleon and, and the, the outcome was not entirely good so in many ways the, the outcome of revolutionary uprisings can actually be making things even worse than they were before so it, 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 what we have to bear in mind is that we should not be using that as, as a thing we do all the time so he's recommending here prudence that I think it's very important. You have to be exercising this lawful right to resist tyranny in a very uh, careful way because you don't want to create more injustice than what is already taking place. I love this. Like, you know, if you, if you don't agree with me, you can agree with him then. Uh, <laughs> Hitler says, the heaviest blow that ever struck humanity was the coming of Christianity. So I, can't, I can't understand why he said so uh, because, after all, uh, Christianity is an antagonistic to uh, his philosophy, if I can put it like that. Uh, to conclude, I think um, uh, it's, uh, it's just to say that uh, Western societies have been blessed by Christianity and undoubtedly we would have a much worse world without it. Uh, Christianity is the base for a common law system. If you want to know more, you just need to buy my book. Then. All right, thank you very much. You. That was Professor Augusto Zimmerman with... Building on a Solid Foundation, Christian Foundations of the Rule of Law in the West. This presentation was part of the Christopher Dawson Centre for Cultural Studies 2018 Colloquium on the theme, A World Without Christianity, which was hosted in Hobart, Australia. For more talks, interviews and shows, visit cradio.org.au.